But you find it helpful to have uh, the passage in Job open in front of you. It's a truth universally acknowledged <coughs> that men don't like chick flicks. That uh, tends to be true. I've, unfortunately, quite a lot of you know me here, so you know that I actually quite enjoy them. But in general, most men hate uh, women's films. It's a proven fact uh, amongst men. No combination of chocolate fingers, flumps, or even quavers can possibly make them palatable to the average bloke. Why? Is it the tear-jerking love stories? I don't think so. Is it the varying combinations of Hugh Grant, Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock in every single film? Again, I don't think it's that. Is it the annoying dialogue that was almost certainly copied from a Hallmark's greeting card? Again, no. I think it's this. They all end in the same way. All of them, every single one of them. No matter what happens in the film, people die, sisters elope, ships sink. But in the end, there's always a happy ending. It could be said in San Francisco or Slough, characters who are astronauts or actors. It doesn't matter, there's always a happy ending. Even in Titanic, a heart goes on, doesn't it, at the end. So here's my question this evening. Is the book of Job a chick flick? A cheesy Hollywood blockbuster? where, for lack of imagination, the author has given us a happy ending <coughs> despite everything that's happened in the book. And is this what we should expect from our Christian life? Should we expect this sort of cheesy happy ending that you get in Hollywood films? Well, we're coming to the story of Job at the end. And uh, you might not know the story of Job. This is what we've missed so far. We've had the moving opening scene where Job loses everything he has, his health and his ten children. We've had the long-winded bit in the middle where Job's friends try to convince him that it's his fault that Job is to blame for his suffering. But of course we know from the opening chapters that Job's done nothing wrong. So we know that his suffering can't be the result of his sin. We've had things badly shaken up a bit with the ambiguous... (laughs) I wrote this a long time ago. Ambiguous appearance of Elihu. Uh, Is he a goodie? Is he a baddie? People disagree, we don't know. And then finally, we've had God explaining himself (laughs) to Job. uh, That that basically, Job has been asking the wrong question all along. It's not up to Job to know why he's suffering, but it is up to Job how he responds to suffering. So what happens next? Is it all going to turn out all right for Job? Is he going to come out of this okay? Well, it looks like the happy ending as we have Job remembering and repenting. Remembering and repenting. And then the Lord, we're going to see reprieving and reproving. And then the Lord restoring and redoubling. Good alliteration just for Steve, there who loves alliteration. Uh, so first of all then, Job remembers and repents. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In the last passage, Job has just been reminded by God himself that it is God who rules the world and not him. And that God is good and not the author of evil. 
In other words, God is all-powerful and all-good. But Job was only reminded of this, if you think about it. He knew this before. Often what we need when we're going through times of difficulty is not to hear something new, but to be reminded of what we already know. We often don't need to be reminded of the gospel. Job hears what he already knows about God. Perhaps he's had his view of the universe a bit more nuanced now with a better understanding of the role of the devil in all this, in suffering. But his understanding of God has not fundamentally changed. He still believes God is all-powerful and all-good. He still fears God and shuns evil. That's been repeated all the way through the book. So if that's true, if Job hasn't done anything wrong, then why does it say that he repents in verse 6? Well, two things that it might be helpful to know. The first is that the word repent is actually the same word as the word comfort, as in Job's comforters. Uh, In my Bible, it's got a footnote at the bottom. It can mean I'm comforted rather than repent. It literally means to sigh. So it could be a sigh of comfort or it could be a sigh of regret. So it could read, I despise myself. I'm uncomforted in dust and ashes. In fact, in Job, this is the only time the word is translated repent. The other five times, it's translated comfort. Secondly, the word is also used of God in the Bible. So God repents in Genesis, Jonah, Judges and 1 Samuel. Even if the word does mean repent in the way that we normally understand it, it needn't imply that Job has done something sinful. Because when it's used of God, it it can't mean that. It's a, a sort of change of mind word that can be used. As human beings, though, repentance is always the right response to hearing God's word, which is what Job has done. Repentance does mean putting our own thinking in line with God's thinking, rethinking our own thoughts in line with what God has revealed. And Job here is a model for us in that. He takes to heart what God has said, and he relents from asking that why question all the time. Why am I suffering? He starts putting God in the dock and reminds himself of what God has revealed to him. Do you notice that he quotes God all the way through this? So verse 3, you asked. Verse 4, you said. He's quoting God as he goes through. Reminding ourselves of what God has revealed about (coughs) us and about himself is one of the best comforts in suffering. Reminding each other of the gospel is one of the best ways to counsel Christians who are undergoing suffering. Reminding each other, as John Newton once put it, he said, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. We need to remind each other of this in suffering. And indeed, for Christians who aren't undergoing suffering, it's also the best thing that we can hear, isn't it? That we are a great sinner, but God is a great saviour. Often part of the problem, though, is that deep down we believe ourselves more than we reveal, believe what God has revealed to us. I think I'm like this. I think I'm unforgivable. I think God could never want me. Whereas what we need to do is look objectively about what God has revealed in the Bible. We need to look at the Bible's estimation of who we are and where we stand before God. I know in recent weeks we started singing that song on a Sunday morning, aren't we? Uh, I am who you say I am. That's a good song if you think about it. It's saying you get to choose who I am. It's your estimation of me that matters rather than I am who I say I am. We need to remind ourselves of it when we're tempted to trust in what we think of what God has said 
We, like Job, should remember the gospel and relent from asking questions that we can't know the answer to. It's when we begin to second-guess God and his purposes that we speak words without knowledge, as Job puts it there. Because we can never know for certain why we are suffering or having a, a hard time. So better instead to focus on what God has revealed to us and the comfort that we can find in that. So Job remembers and repents. Secondly, the Lord reprieves and reproves. Have a look with me at verses 7 to 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken what is right of me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So we saw before what Job was doing, we now see what God does. The Lord reprieves and reproves. Job's so-called friends are charged with not speaking what is right about the Lord. You see that there in verse 7. God declares that Job's friends have not been telling the truth about him and God is angry with them. Have you ever thought that the way that you try and talk to someone, the way you <coughs> seek to comfort them, could actually make God angry? It's quite a strange thought, isn't it? Even if you've got good intentions in that way, there are ways in which we can talk to people that make the Lord angry. It's a shocking thought, isn't it? But it's exactly what happens here. Job's friends have misrepresented God and they've charged Job with sin, even though they had no evidence that that was what had happened. And in doing so, they sinned themselves. That's why they need to have an offering made for them. How the tables have turned, if you think about it. Far from Job needing them to help him, they now need Job to help them. They must offer seven bulls and rams as a burnt offering. And as we were hearing this morning from Leviticus, that's to do with dealing with God's anger. And that's exactly what the problem is, isn't it? God is angry with them. It fits with what we saw this morning. They've got to offer seven, which is in the Bible, it's sort of the perfect number, a number of completeness. I know my boys know that seven means complete, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's to do with a complete offering, if you like. They've got to be completely atoned for. That's what God is asking. And Job now prays for them. And we see the beginning of a return to chapter one with Job praying for people. Job interceding on behalf of other people, almost in a priestly role, you see here at the end. In the first chapter, it's for his children that he was praying and offering sacrifices. But here in the last chapter, it's for his friends. It's important to note here that Job, and also intriguingly Elihu, does not have to make any sacrifice for himself. Again, dispelling any notion that he's actually done something wrong. Indeed, at the end of uh, verse 8, we see, You have not spoken right, uh, me what is right, as my servant Job has. <laughs> Actually, Job gets a reprieve, doesn't he? He's spoken what is right. So, Job has said what is right about the Lord. Yes, he needed to know that he didn't need to know why. 
Yes, he needed to know that there was no need to put God in the dock. But what he had said about God was true. He's been justified. Not by himself as a lie who had seemed to suggest that he could do. But by God. Not guilty. So Job gets a reprieve. His contested innocence is finally proven as God doesn't demand a sacrifice here. And Job can hold his head up high. So the Lord reproves Job's friends and he reprieves Job. But then we also see, uh, finally, that the Lord restores and rewards. Have a look at verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he named the, fir- the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Keren Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years, and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Firstly, then, the Lord restores. You see that in verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. After dealing with his friends in yet another uh, right way, God restores him to his former position and more, in fact. But the Lord doesn't just restore his fortune. He restores his relationships. In verse 11, we see his brothers and sisters uh, coming. His brothers and sisters deserted him when he was suffering Uh, Listen to this from, if you turn back to chapter uh, 19 of Job, verse 13. (coughs) He said, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. So that's how Job was feeling uh, in the middle of it all. But here his brothers and his sisters come back to him. All his relationships that are restored and more than that, they do what his friends fail to do. They comfort him. They <coughs> console him. Now, we don't know how. It would have been great, wouldn't it, if we'd actually been given what they, what they said, what they did. It'd be great to know what it was that they did right, that the friends did wrong. But Job has already heard all he needs to know by this point, hasn't he? God himself has spoken to him. But more than just what... They say to him, we do see them providing for him practically. Each one gives him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now, Job had lost everything. And in that context, gold and silver aren't bad ways to provide for their friend and relative, are they? They provide practically for him. So now Job has had his fortunes restored. But more than just restoring Job to his former condition, God gives him twice as much as he had before. The Lord redoubles. He gets twice as many sheep as he had in chapter 1. Twice as many camels. Twice as many oxen. Twice as many donkeys. But notice, not twice as many children 
as though his children were the same as camels and donkeys. He had ten in chapter one, seven sons and three daughters. And here he has ten more in chapter 42. The implication seems to be that he still has those ten children before, waiting for him in glory. And now he gets another ten here on earth. Twenty in all, but only ten with him at this time. But not only are we told that there are twice as many now, we're also told that his daughters are the most beautiful in the world. That's a pretty big statement. And this is the Bible saying it, so, you know, it must be pretty big. And it's also reflected in the names that he gives to them. Now, I know we had a baby shower this afternoon, but they're only boys' names. Uh, these are girls' names. I do have friends who've named them, uh, named their children after at least one of these. Um, you could translate them hot, spicy, and mascara. That's the sort of... Uh, it's, it really is quite uh, quite interesting names that are to do with spices and heat and sort of perf- makeup that you, you put on. So it seems to reflect that he thought they were going to grow up to be um, uh, beautiful women. And whereas the daughters in chapter 1 seem to be socially attached to their brothers, they eat together every day, and so were probably without husbands... These ones, I imagine, would have been able to find the best husbands the ancient world had to offer. You know, the Brad Pitts of the Bronze Age. But on top of that, they're granted an inheritance alongside their brothers. You see that in verse 15. Job actually gives them an inheritance. Job's situation is so great that he can grant his daughters an inheritance, an equal treatment of all his offspring, male and female. He's got so much that actually without really losing anything for his other children, he can give to his daughters as well. So this is truly as good as it gets. Job not only gets to see his sons and his daughters get married, but he gets to see his grandchildren. Even his great-grandchildren marry and have children. But as well as this doubling, which might seem as amazing and wonderful as it is, Apart from the doubling, we also get some things that aren't there. We get some notable absences from things that were there at the beginning. Do you notice here that there is no Satan? God has spoken here, but not Satan. Satan appears at the beginning, but he doesn't appear at the end. There's no challenge to God here. No permission granted to go after Job. Satan, it would seem, hasn't even the nerve to show his face. He's lost, hasn't he? As he put God to the test and put Job to the test. Job has remained faithful. He is still fearing God and shunning evil. He even served the Lord when there was seemingly nothing in it for him. No chance then of a rerun of the previous chapters. The Satan is defeated. And this is backed up by another notable absence. There's no spouse. No Satan, no spouse. Although we have mention here of ten new children, there's no mention of his wife. Now, we know that she's there because children don't just come out of thin air, do they? But the author has left her out. Why? Well, it's the same reason that there's no Satan. Job is not one of those Hollywood blockbusters with a deliberately ambiguous ending preparing for a sequel. You know, Job Part 2. Actually, Job's suffering is over. There is no chance of it going back. So remember Job's wife tempting him in Chapter 2, curse God and die? Well, she's not here to tempt him now. She doesn't get a mention. He can get on with life. So there's no Satan and no spouse. And then finally, there's no suffering. That's lastly and most obviously. There's no suffering here. It's done with. And here we must suspend our systematic theology, so to speak, 
a bit like Job uh, earlier on when it says that he's faultless. We've got to sort of suspend what we know is true of all human beings. Of course there is suffering for Job after this. Of course there are bad things that will happen to him in his life. Because actually all who desire to live a righteous life will suffer. We see that in the New Testament. But here the author leaves all that out, doesn't he? He gives us a wonderful picture of a sort of idyllic end. No suffering can be seen. Uh, Nothing seems to be wrong here at the end. So what are we to make of this? Is this what a Christian should expect? Lost your son? Don't worry, God will give you another one. Lost all your money? Don't worry, in a few months God will give you double. Not at all. We're not promised a Job experience. Not in our lifetime anyway. Some Christians will suffer all their lives and then they'll die. No restoration, no reprieve, let alone double what they had before. But that's not to say that Job doesn't represent the Christian experience when viewed with eternity in mind. Whilst we are not told to expect to be vindicated and rewarded in this life, we are told that that's exactly what we're to expect in the new creation with Jesus. We're to expect something even better than Eden at the end. Uh, It's like the ending of Job with no Satan and no suffering. No chance of history repeating itself. And as Christians, we all have that to look forward to. You see, the book of Job, the Bible, and the whole of history, and the Knight logo, have one thing in common. They're all tick-shaped. You know what I mean? So I'll have to do this the right way around for you. That way. The Bible and history go from creation to the fall to the new creation. We do have a glorious future ahead of us if we're followers of Christ this evening. But, actually often that involves that bit in the middle, doesn't it? The bit where we go down, where we see we live in a suffering world because of the fall. But if we tell a friend undergoing a period of severe suffering that God will end it in this life, then we're no better than Job's friends. We can no more foresee their future than Job could see his. Job didn't know what was coming. It might not have come for Job. He didn't know. But what we can tell them about is their hope in glory, if they're a Christian. Job had no certainty that his restoration would happen in this life. But we do have certainty that it will happen in the next. Listen to this. This is from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials. Do you see there? God has a glorious future in line for us. But actually the reality of our experience for most of our lives now is that we suffer. We have a future that's better than the Garden of Eden. Better than Job's happy ending. I mean, Job died, didn't he, at the end of the story. He died old and happy, if you like. But he still died. Where we're going, even death has been defeated. I mean, think about how it speaks of it in Revelation 21, with that glorious future, with no tears, and with no sadness, and with no suffering. 
God promises there an inheritance to all who overcome. So overcome. Keep going like Job. Keep fearing God and shunning evil. Keep believing the gospel and repenting of your sin. Think of God's gracious reward for you in the new creation won by Christ. But there is another side to this. We're not Job, are we? We do fail. And though as real Christians we keep going, we don't remain sinless as we go, do we? What hope do we stand? Job can plead innocent, can't he, again with our systematic theology suspended. But we can't. Well, just as Job's friends, we need that sacrifice and mediator. We need the same. We need someone to stand in our place who can take the rap for us and someone to plead our case before God. Well, we have that, don't we? We have someone far greater than Job as our mediator. We have a sacrifice that's far greater than even seven bulls and rams. We have Jesus who pleads for us before the Father, who knows what we're like but acts as a go-between between us and God the Father. We have Jesus who died in our place to save us from the penalty of our sins, who died so that we might live with God forever in a new creation. So as we go on suffering in this life, we can remember that we have a future far more glorious and far more certain than even Job's. We have eternity in glory with God and Jesus who has won our place there by his death and resurrection. And that's not a cheesy Hollywood ending to sell more films. Actually, it's the reward that God gives us freely because of his son's sacrifice and victory in our place. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful ending that we have to look forward to. Father, thank you that Jesus is now preparing a place for us in glory. And Father, we pray that in those difficult moments, Father, in those times when we're finding things hard, help us to look forward to that wonderful future. Help us to remember that history is tick-shaped and that we're looking forward to that even better than Eden ahead. Father, help us to, to keep going. Help us to counsel one another and comfort one another in the sufferings of this life. That help us to point one another to Jesus and the wonderful future we will have with him. In Jesus' name we pray.